Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the last book of the Bible, which is the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can turn to chapter number 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the very last part, turn to that last book, and turn to chapter 19, and you'll be right where our passage is for the day. This is the last in a series of messages I have entitled, Four Favorites. And every time I have been sharing with you something that is very a special treat to me, something I enjoy eating, and I want to share another of those with you today, it is actually going to be my favorite cookie of all time. It's really a special treat that my grandmother would make whenever we came to visit her on the house on the hill in Waterford, Pennsylvania. We would get there and she would have already baked these cookies. And they are raisin-filled cookies. And the way you would make them is you would take some raisins and you take some butter and you take some sugar and you take a little bit of flour and you make the raisin mixture with it, with it all together. Then you would put it on some dough. Then you put an umbrella of dough over the top of that and you would bake them. They look a little bit like uh, small hockey pucks. But man, they are delicious. And I really appreciate my wife putting forth the labor of love. They're not easy to bake and she baked them so that I could have these pictures just to flash in front of you, but also so that I could eat them. And I have been eating them very carefully. I want to spread this out for as much time as possible so I can enjoy my favorite cookies of all time, my grandmother's raisin-filled cookies. But if you've been with us in this series, you know this is not a series about my favorite treats. It's rather a series about some of my favorite passages from God's Word. And we've been using a theme throughout the series, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, where Jeremiah says of the Word of God, he says, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And there are many passages from God's Word that delight my heart, but in this series, we're just looking at four of them, and today we come to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Now, every time in this series, I've been taking a little bit back in time and explaining a little bit about how a passage of Scripture became one of my favorites, and I need to do that again today. I need to take you back in time to the time that I was a college student at the University of Nebraska. It is the summer of 1970. I am 19 years old. And because college students have more flexible time, we decided, four of us, that we were going to take a trip across the USA for two weeks. And we were going to stop off at a key meeting place for the three major student ministry organizations on college campuses. So we drove from Nebraska to Bear Trap Ranch in Colorado Springs, which was the InterVarsity's conference center. And we checked that out. And then we did a hop, skip, and a jump in Colorado Springs over to Glen Erie, which is the headquarters of the Navigators. And then we drove on to California to Arrowhead Springs, which was the headquarters in that time 
of Campus Crusade. But we also made another stop when we were in California, and that was at the University of California at Los Angeles, known as UCLA. And we wanted to go there because there was something special happening at a place on campus called the Light and Power House. A guy by the name of Hal Lindsey was teaching there. Now, you say, well, what was so special about Hal Lindsey teaching there? What you may not know is that a very special book, impactful book, came out in 1970, earlier in the year, written by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, this book I've had now for 47 years. And I can still remember going to the Light and Power House in the UCLA campus and, and actually Hal taught from the floor with a music stand. And I was, I'm always a front row person, I was right at his feet, just sitting there on the floor looking at, at him as he taught about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so it was Hal himself who was the first one to teach me about the truth of the second coming of Christ. Now, I, I don't embrace everything that Hal Lindsey taught about prophecy, but I've always deeply appreciated his heart to point me to the teaching on the second coming of Christ. And by the way, this book, I had him sign it at the time, 47 years ago. He wrote to Bruce, may the hope of his soon return keep you excited in his service. And then he signed it, Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. And indeed, the truth of the second coming of Christ has kept me excited all of these years since then. Now, before we actually read the passage we have before us today, I'm going to give you a rather long introduction, so you can just be ready for it. I want to start off talking about today's cultural atmosphere in our nation. You know, if we were to go out on the street and conduct a survey, we might ask a question like this. Do you believe there is a day coming in which Jesus will come back in power to judge the rebellious human race? That's the question we might pose. Do you believe there's a day coming in which Jesus comes back in power to judge the rebellious human race? Now, if we were to go out on the street of America today and ask that question, what kinds of responses would we get? Well, no doubt, a number of people would say, well, I doubt it. I doubt that's going to happen. Or some might say, I don't think so. I don't think so. And others might say, no, 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 Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't come back and judge the rebellious human race. You know we would hear some of those responses, and probably the majority of them would be that. And the truth is, for those who have that perspective out in our culture today, I would simply say this. My verdict is, they are sadly mistaken. At the same time, what is interesting, we can talk that way about the culture, but even in the church, many in the church at large, many who are followers of Jesus today tend to downplay Bible prophecy. There are many who would say, well, you know, it's really not that important. The study of future things, uh, the theological term is eschatology. Uh, the study of those kinds of things, including the second coming of Christ, well, you know, that's, that's just really more of secondary importance. That's not of first importance. It's really not vital. Other truths about Jesus are vital, but not that one. And again, my verdict is for those who might have that perspective, even among followers of Christ, is that they're really, honestly, sadly mistaken. 
You know, Bible prophecy is a very unique thing. It is very precise. It is very specific. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 11, it says this, God speaking, I am God, I alone. I am God, and there is no one like me. Only I can tell you what is going to happen even before it happens. And everything I plan will come to pass. That's what Bible prophecy is. It's telling us what's going to happen before it even happens. And everything that he plans will come to pass. Someone has estimated that in the Bible we have 1,000 prophecies. Not sure, I've never counted them all. But they go on to say that one half of those 1,000 prophecies have already been fulfilled. Already were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. But even if that's true, there's 500 of them to go that have not yet been fulfilled. And when you take in the Bible prophecies related to the second coming of Christ and you compare them to prophecies related to the first coming of Christ, the prophecies of the second coming to Christ outnumber the first coming eight to one. Seems to me like there's some significance to the prophecies about the second coming of Christ. Again, someone's counted this up. I didn't do it, but they said... Regarding the second coming of Christ, there are 1,527 references in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are 300 references to the second coming. And 21.5% of the New Testament contains prophecy about the second coming of Christ and the events surrounding it. Now, that's pretty significant to me. It indicates to me we should pay a little bit of attention to what the Bible has to say about the second coming of Christ. You know, it's interesting, God's cosmic story of the universe, if you go all the way back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, it has a very dramatic beginning, his cosmic story. And you can go back there to Genesis 1 to 3, and you see that he creates the world, he creates the universe, he creates Adam and Eve. They are in rebellion. They end up introducing death into the universe. They end up being tossed from the Garden of Eden. Then you go a little deeper into the book of Genesis, chapters 6 to 9, and mankind becomes fully corrupted, and God sends a judgment on the world, a flood, and it destroys all of humanity except for one family. Now, that is a very dramatic beginning to God's cosmic story of the universe. It goes on to tell us back in that story that there is a deliverer who will come one day who would restore humanity's relationship with God. Well, just as the beginning of God's cosmic story is dramatic, so the consummation of God's story is dramatic. And and when Christ comes back the second time, it's not as the Lamb of God. He's coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is coming back the second time to judge a rebellious world. He's coming back to establish his kingdom on earth. And we see in the consummation story that the old heavens and earth, that's where we live now, are going to be destroyed, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. It's very dramatic. And so all I'm saying by all of that is we 
in my opinion, should pay as much attention to what the Bible says about the consummation of his cosmic story as we do about the beginning of his cosmic story. I mean, after all, Jesus thought this was pretty important. Do you know what the last major teaching was by Jesus before the cross? If you just set aside, you know, what he taught his disciples in the upper room just before his arrest, what was the major teaching of Christ before the cross? It was on the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. See, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, what is the sign of your coming in glory and the end of the age? And he has this extended teaching about all that. You see it in Matthew chapter 24. You see it in Mark chapter 13. You see it in Luke chapter 21. And right after that, in those three gospels, you have the arrest and the cross and everything after that. In all three of those situations, he says to them, you will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. And then we come to the book of the Revelation. And it is the only book in the Bible that has a special blessing for those who read and heed it. We see it in the first chapter of the book. Verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. We see it not only in the first chapter, we see it in the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 7, where he says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So this, men and women, is worthy of our attention. And that's the introduction. So now, let's read the passage. I invite you to read along with me as I read Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. The apostle John writes, and he said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, men and women, this passage we have before us today is a reminder of reality. Sometimes, you know, we're so close to living life, we lose sight of reality. This is a reminder of reality. Christ is coming back in glory. Now, I can so remember the first time I read this passage of Scripture, and it gave me goosebumps. And to be honest with you, it has continued to do that over the years. This is a description of the very moment of the beginning of the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. This is the culmination of Bible prophecy. This is really the culmination of all biblical history since Genesis chapter 3. And aside from the events of the Easter season, this is the most dramatic portion of God's word. So let's look at it. John says, I saw heaven opened. You study the book, you'll know that in chapter 4 and verse 1, there he says, I saw a door opened in heaven. But now it's, it's a much bigger event. He says, I saw heaven opened up. It's almost like there was this super long sliding door that went all the way open and all of heaven is now opened up. And he says, and behold, you know, our way of saying that might be, oh my, he sees a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And we're going to see that the one sitting on the horse is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And I look at this and I think about, think back to the time of the crucifixion when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. He was riding on what? A donkey colt. He's riding on a different animal now. He's on a white horse. And a white horse was symbolic in that day of military victory. If you know your Roman history, you'll know that the Roman general, after he'd won the battle, he would come back to Rome, he would get on a white horse and parade up the Via Sacra in Rome. After the victory had been won, he would get on the white horse. Do you notice something different here? The victory hasn't actually been won yet, but he's already on a white horse. Why is that? Because the victory is completely certain. There's not any doubt about what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be victorious. Verse 11 says, he who sat on it is called faithful and true. He's the real one. He is authentic. He is trustworthy. Because he is, we can trust all the truths of Scripture. We can trust everything that God says, everything that God predicts, including all future events. He is faithful and true. Notice the last phrase of verse 11. It says, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. What's happening here? Well, after multiple centuries of God's grace and mercy with sinful, rebellious humanity, we've now come to the point where God's patience has run its course. And he is ready to judge and wage war. Verse 12 describes him this way. It says, his eyes are a flame of fire. He has this penetrating, omniscient gaze. And to his gaze, all evil is exposed. Hebrews 4.13 says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we give an account. And humanity is going to give an account. Because on to say in, in verse 12, and on his head are many diadems. Again, my thoughts go back to the first coming of Christ. And as he went to the cross, what was on his head? Remember? That mocking crown of thorns. 
It's very different. In his second coming, there are, it says, many diadems. Diadems are ruler crowns. There's multiple ruler crowns on his head. It's just a picture of total sovereignty. His sovereignty is undeniable. And then we have that phrase, it's so interesting, in verse 12, and he has a name written which no one knows except himself. Some sort of a secret name. I'm always amused when I read commentators who try to figure out what the secret name is. What does it say? He has a name written which no one knows except himself. I mean, an infinite God can never be fully known. He transcends human knowledge. Whatever this name is, none of us can even know what it is. And then he says in verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. If you've been with us in our baptism class, we talk about the word baptism and how it comes from another word, bapto, B-A-P-T-O, and if you're in that class, you know that bapto means to dip. It's the exact word that is used here. He is wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. Now, I remember the very first time that I read through this and I came to that, he is wearing this robe dipped in blood and I'm getting all these goosebumps just reading through all this and I said to myself, well, you know, that blood must be the blood of the cross. I mean, we are made white in the blood of the lamb and so we see that blood reminding us of that and that was my first response, but you know, the more I've studied this over time, I don't really think that's what it's referring to. Because the focus of this section of the Word of God is not on Christ's work as Redeemer. Rather, the focus is on Christ as the warrior judge. And I think what we have here is an allusion to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 and 3. And there it talks about the Lord in his vengeance of judgment. And there's this conversation to the Lord, speaking of the Lord, and it says this, why are your clothes so red as if you have been treading out grapes? God says, I have trodden the winepress alone. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. What a picture. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. It is their blood that has stained my clothes, that is spattered on my clothes. That's what I think he's talking about. Now, he hasn't actually engaged the rebellious world because as he comes out of heaven, the world's actually going to turn on him. And there's going to be bloodshed, but it's already on his robe. Why? Because it's certain that it's going to happen. It is certain that it will happen. Verse 13, and his name is called... Here's the identifier, the Word of God, who is writing the book of the Revelation, the Apostle John. He also wrote the Gospel of John, chapter number one. He says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus Christ. This is Jesus in his second coming. Now, I want you to look at verse 14. I want to read it again. It says, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What I want you to notice about that verse is the word army is not in the singular, it is in the plural. There are armies, plural. 
And we know that one of the armies is an army of angels. We know that from multiple passages in the Bible. For example, Matthew 16, 27 says he is going to return the second time in glory with his angels. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, he's going to come back, it says, with his mighty angels. So when we're talking about armies, plural, one of the armies is the army of angels. But there is more than one. And this, to me, is what gets very exciting. This is what has always excited me about this passage. Another army that is going to be accompanying him as he returns in, second, in his second time, it would be the saints in glory. That's us. That's his followers. And there are several reasons why we know that is true. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, it talks about Jesus' second coming, and he says he will be coming with all his saints. That's the followers of Christ. We, we, can, we can see it right here in the book of the Revelation. Turn one page to the left to chapter 17. And look at verse 14. It's talking about here uh, people waging war against the Lamb, Christ. He's going to overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Christ, who are they? They are the called and the chosen, and the faithful. They are the saints in glory who are returning with Christ. We know that is true also because of chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, very close proximity to what we're looking at in the following verses. It talks about the marriage of the Lamb, the, the festival of the marriage of the Lamb, where the bride has made herself ready. And notice it says, regarding the bride of Christ, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we talk about here these armies, one of which is clothed in fine linen, white and clean. This is talking about the saints in glory. And it says that we are going to be following him on white horses, now, that's us. Does that not get you a little excited? I mean, try to ponder that this week. What the scene is going to be like when as part of the armies that come with him would be the army of the saints in glory. And by the way, I noticed that, that, that us following him as his army of saints, we have no weapons. Why? because we don't need any weapons. We're not doing any fighting. Jesus is going to do all the fighting. In fact, it's not going to be any hand-to-hand -hand combat. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. In Isaiah 11:4, it says that when he comes back, he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. No hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's just going to speak, and humanity is going to be destroyed. With this sword out of his mouth, he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. You know, you read some of this, and it's just, it's so hard. I mean, that's, that's hard language when you talk about human beings 
He's going to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Way back in the book of beginnings, I mean, way, way back in the book of beginnings, there was a guy by the name of Enoch, and he made a prophecy about the second coming of Christ. And when he made it, he actually used the past tense because it was that certain. And it's recorded for us in Jude, verses 14 and 15, and here's what he says. He says, the Lord came, this is the second coming, with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, that's a hard statement to see. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 9 It tells us this, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And then it says this, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's just some hard stuff to ponder. Look at verse 16. It says, on his robe and also on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, I read that and I think again back to the crucifixion. Remember what happened to the robe that he was wearing when he was arrested and then beaten? What happened? The soldiers cast lots for his robe. No one's touching this robe. You know, and it's interesting how much we like to monogram things, you know. We monogram sweaters, we monogram shirts. Guess who invented monogramming? God himself. And so we have on his robe monogrammed and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, he has always been the supreme ruler of the universe, And what that means for those of us who know him, that nothing ever comes into our life except it passes through his hands first. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Moses sought to teach that to the people of Israel before they entered into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17, he said to them, the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Wow. You know, you read through a passage like this, and we have to do the practice that the psalmists often did where they, they would use the word selah, S-E-L-A-H. It would mean pause. Let that truth kind of sink in a little bit. And that's what we need to do with this. Whoa. This is some amazing information. While we're pondering that, think about this. You know, it's interesting how as human beings we have viewed God's timetable, well, it just appears a little slow to us. You ever think about that? I mean, think about the the Old Testament, how there was this promise of the Messiah who would come. And then like there's, you know, like seven centuries go by. And then there's 400 silent years from the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus. God didn't say a peep for four centuries. 
What do you think people were thinking? I mean, is God ever going to act? Is God ever going to fulfill his promise of sending the Messiah to us? God's timetable just seems a little slow to us. And the same thing is true not only of his first coming, but his second coming. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 9, it tells us that in the last days, there will be some who will start mocking regarding the second coming of Christ, and they will say, well, where's the promise of his coming? <laughs> I mean, look at it. You know, he came in the first century. Now we've had 20 centuries go by. I don't think he's coming. And Peter goes on to write this, even though it seems slow, his timetable to us. He says, the Lord is really not slow as some people count slowness. He is patient. And then he goes on to write, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Men and women, this is reality. This is reality. And we have before us a reminder of reality. Now, as we look at this reminder of reality, what is our response to it? Well, on the one hand, it's encouraging. I mean, it really is encouraging. You say, well, Bruce, how, how is this encouraging? Well, I'm reminded of a guy by the name of Asaph who wrote some of the Psalms of the Old Testament, and he wrote Psalm 73. And here's what Asaph said. He said, you know, when I look around in my generation, he said, I just get frustrated I see arrogant people, I see wicked people, I see violent people who do harm to people, I see people who are mocking God. And I like one of the phrases he uses. He says, their tongues parade through the earth. These obnoxious people who are wicked. And he says, it was troublesome to my spirit until I went into the temple and I saw their end, and that changed everything for me. I realized God's going to deal with wicked, violent, evil people. And we're learning that about his second coming. Jesus Christ is coming back a second time, and he's going to judge rapists. He's going to judge murderers. He's going to judge child traffickers. He's going to judge those who do Ponzi schemes and steal money from people. He's going to judge those who steal the retirement money of elderly people. Does that not just tick you off when that happens? He's going to judge people who shoot 22-year-old police officers as recently happened in our area. It's actually encouraging to know. Jude 15, he's going to judge all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. So on one hand, it is encouraging. On the other hand, this is challenging, challenging. In 2 Peter chapter 3, where it's talking about the second coming of Christ, and it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earth and its works in it will be burned up. And then here comes the punchline in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people, followers of Jesus, ought you to be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's challenging. We should live differently because of this truth in the Word of God. 
Romans chapter 13, verses 12 to 14, Paul puts it this way. He says, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. He's coming back. So what should we do? Well, so remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or even in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. How do we respond? Well, on one hand, it's encouraging. On another hand, it is challenging on yet another hand, it is sobering. It is even sobering for us as followers of Christ. Think about this. We read 2 Thessalonians 1. It says divine retribution is going to fall on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as followers of Christ, we all have loved ones who haven't trusted in him. We all have friends who haven't trusted in him. We have people around us at work. We have people around us at school who have not yet embraced the good news of Jesus Christ in their life. And men and women, that's sobering, is it not? It's very sobering. Well, what are we to do about that? Can we do anything about that? And the answer is yes. One thing we can do is to pray for them. You know, Paul talked about how he was sobered about the fate of unbelieving Israel in Romans chapter 10. And he said, my prayer for them is for their salvation. We can all do that. We can pray for our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, the people we work with, people at school. Pray for their salvation. That's what Paul did. Second thing we can do is we can share. We can share the reason for the hope that is within us. We can share our testimony. We can share the gospel. We can share that Christ is coming back a second time. Now, we have a saying in our culture that says, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Same thing is true of our friends and our relatives, our coworkers. We can lead them to the water, but we can't make them drink. Now, there's a way we can do instant affirmation and application. We have these little cards we put together and on the back, it talks about coming to Wildwood for our Easter worship services, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We, you could take this right now and share this with your friends at work. You could share this with your neighbors. You could share this with other people that you know and invite them to come to Wildwood where the gospel message will be proclaimed. And we're going to have people at the exits handing these out. Take multiple copies of them. Share. We can pray and we can share. It's sobering for those who are followers of Jesus, but it's really sobering for anyone who has yet to embrace Jesus as their Savior, their Savior from sin and judgment. And I don't know, in a room like this or anyone listening to my voice, it's possible we have multiple people that are like that. You've never yet trusted in Christ as your rescuer. Let me just say, it's not too late. He is coming back to do this, but it's not too late to trust in Him. There's still an opportunity you know, in the first worldwide judgment of the flood, salvation and deliverance was given to those inside of the ark. In the second worldwide judgment that's coming, salvation will be given to those who are in the ark of Christ. 
who've trusted and put their faith in his work on the cross. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, what is his word? I came to give my life as a ransom for you. He who hears my word that I came to give my life as a ransom for you and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. If you haven't yet turned to Jesus and trust in his death in your place, you need to do that. You don't have to be in church to do that. You can be anywhere to do that. You can be in a car. But it's a decision we make to say, that's my hope. My hope is in Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, men and women, these are God's words. Eat them, embrace them, believe them, and they will be a joy and a delight to your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we just again thank you so much for this section of God's word. We need to be reminded of reality. And may we, as we are stirred up in a reminder of reality, remember to pray for those that we care about who don't yet know Christ, to pray for their salvation, and then to share, to share our testimony, to share the gospel, to share our story with them so that they might have that opportunity to trust in the one that we trust in who makes all the difference in all of the world and for all of eternity. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.